Hi, welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivienne Marks. This episode is called Bye Bye Bunny. This music is called Coffee Pot by the band Split Phase. This episode is about research into diseases such as COVID-19. It's about research antibodies and seeing how possible it might be to avoid gathering research antibodies from animals such as rabbits. Is it possible to say bye-bye bunny? I asked around. There is certainly some change happening related to research antibodies and producing non-animal-derived antibodies. First off, a bit about the antibodies in our bodies. Antibodies are the body's big helpers. When there's an infection, the immune system is called to action by an invader such as a virus. B cells, those are a kind of white blood cell, make antibodies, a diverse set of antibodies. We have many B cells, and each B cell can make a different antibody as a reaction to an invading virus. At least for B cells, we kind of know what happens, right? Your body is armed with about 10 billion of them, different ones different Velcro sticking out, waiting. That's Alan Edwards from the University of Toronto. Waiting for something they, they can recognize, and they have different shapes. And if an antigen happens to come along that binds tightly to one of these B cells, it starts exploding and making more of it and pumping out antibodies. And But so, for example, with the SARS-CoV-2, when you get infected with that, I'm making up the number, but let's say a thousand B cells get activated. So your body makes a thousand different types of antibodies, one to this, one to here, one to here, one to here, one to here. So you can sort of picture it, right? A lot of them is binding all over. And that is because there's many of them. It's poly, polyclonal. So if you inject SARS into you, your body of the 10 billion B cells, a thousand will make an antibody. Each one is different. So you have a thousand different antibodies. And if you were ejected into a rabbit, the rabbit would make a thousand different. So those are called polycones. What we want parenthetically for the neutralizing antibody for this infection is the antibody that stops the virus from working. An antibody can stick to the virus, but that doesn't mean it will stop the virus from working. So Labs need to find what Edwards calls the business end of the virus. They want to find ways to intervene at that business end, which is one aspect that labs are working feverishly on right now. And it's impossible to know now, without results from people, which are the real neutralizing antibodies. And so all the tests that are being developed, you know, that we hear about, you know, where people give blood and have a... Yeah, they can say, first of all, they, the old versions of the test said you have been infected by a coronavirus, not the coronavirus. Then they realized, oh, shit. we got rid of those tests. The new ones come out and say they're more selective for the SARS-CoV-2. And they can say you were infected, but it, they can't tell you yet if you can get reinfected or not. because they There's... We hope it works because they can take those antibodies in a test tube and say, hey, it blocks the virus in the test tube. But that doesn't say it's going to block the virus in a person. And so that's one of the interesting and mysteries of this new virus is this, and the immune response is we don't know enough yet because ultimately the data has to come from people. It's only been around for five months. 
I think that people are hoping, you know, now they've invented a new test. They, they hope that the virus, imagine that the virus binds to this protein ACE2, and then that's how it gets into cells. And they can make a test that, monit that monitors that interaction, you know, so you'd have ACE2, you'd have the antibody, and then you add, and see if it gets popped off by another. There's lots of different variations how you can make that kind of a test. But it still doesn't show in a person. You can that still shows, yeah, uh, like Vivian, you've made an antibody that can block the virus from binding ACE2 in a test tube. We know that. Whether that antibody can protect you, because let's pretend it's got to get to your airway epithelia and the antibodies don't get there. So you have them in your blood, but they never get to the right place and the virus can infect you anyway. It can only be learned in people. These are among the reasons why finding ways to stop COVID-19 is so hard. Part of working on diseases like COVID-19 and many other diseases is studying proteins that play a role in these diseases. Many companies are developing tests to detect antibodies to COVID-19. Antibodies are large, Y-shaped proteins in our blood. And to detect them in a test, you use a blood sample and research antibodies specific to the protein you're hunting for. Carl Ascoli is chief science officer at the antibody company Rockland Immunochemicals and talks about the test his company is involved with. In 2004, when SARS coronavirus was uh, an issue, we generated an antibody to SARS coronavirus in such a way that it was pan-reactive with various clades of coronavirus at that time. And as a consequence, we had in our system already to go an antibody against coronavirus that was more than 95% reactive with this current coronavirus. And so we had an antibody in the United States already produced. And as a consequence, that particular reagent has been taken up by non-exclusively by at least uh, 25 diagnostic companies, uh, three or four global major diagnostic companies that have gone through EUA and have begun manufacturing with it. So we're actually the chip inside, you know, the old saying for the computer, uh, we don't make the computer, we make the chip inside. We're, we make the antibody inside the kit that are just being deployed now for antigen detection. Antibodies are used inside kits of various kinds. For COVID-19, companies distributing tests in the United States need what is called an emergency use authorization from the Food and Drug Administration, an EUA. And in the case of Rockland Immunochemicals, the antibody they use is a particular kind. Vivian, it's a polyclonal antibody. And it works in serological assays, it works in ELISAs, it works in lateral flow assays, it works in flow cytometry, it works in immunofluorescence microscopy, it works on paraffin-embedded formalin-fixed tissue taken from cadavers by immunohistochemistry, and it neutralizes the virus. And that's actually one of the strengths of a polyclonal antibody, in that it, it mimics the natural immune system. So, touche. Touché? Why touché? Because not everyone likes polyclonals as research antibodies. Polyclonal antibodies are used in many labs, on many lab benches, in many papers. 
To make polyclonals, companies start by immunizing an animal, usually a rabbit, and gathering antibodies from the blood of that animal. Polyclonals, though, I, I do believe that we should be getting rid of those, in large part because it is impossible to assure lot-to-lot variability. And we are scientists, after all, and we should have trust in the reagents that we're using, as it were. And because polyclonals can vary so much from rabbit to rabbit to rabbit. Besides this inherent variability, an issue with polyclonals is that they are non-renewable. Fritjof Lund Johansen from Oslo University Hospital explains. Polyclonals that are made by many companies are non-renewable, right? Because you, you immunize a goat or a, or a rabbit and, and when the rabbit dies, you, you don't have it. All this discussion, we've, we've had lots of these discussions about the old-fashioned, if you like, polyclonals. Uh, they are not renewable because unless you have DNA for the B cells, which most people don't have, right? mm. you just immunize and you get out serum. So it's non-renewable. Yeah, I think polyclonals have, have had their time. That's Alejandra Solash, vice president of new product development at the antibody company Abcam. I think, um, you know, like uh, any any technology that was great at the time, uh, like uh, tapes, that probably people don't even know right now, CDs, uh, all of that. Now the new technology, uh, improved technologies come up and who really needs a CD or a CD player anymore even. Um, or, um, I mean, there are not even tape recorders or tape players anymore. So I, I see the polyclonals that way, that um, uh, that basically is, is like a like a tape that, that could break and, uh, and you have to fix it. And if you couldn't fix it, then that's it. You got rid, you, you can't, you can't have that music anymore. Some companies and academics, but not all, are done with polyclonals. Some of the issues that can happen with experiments using polyclonals are due to the fact that batches of polyclonals can vary from one lot to another. After all, the antibodies might have been generated with different rabbits. But there are plenty of people who still find polyclonals work well for their purposes. And companies have ways to minimize batch-to-batch variability. I'm just going to set that polyclonal discussion aside for a moment to get to some other kinds of commercial antibodies beyond polyclonals. There are monoclonals. There are recombinants. There are animal-free antibodies. And the list goes on. Scientists can buy antibodies from any number of companies, and they have around 2 to 3 million antibodies to choose from. 2 to 3 million. That's quite a selection. The first step I mentioned The one that starts with immunizing an animal is one that Alison Gray from the University of Nottingham would like to change. She founded a nonprofit called Affability, all about advocating for animal-free antibody production. She, along with colleagues, has published papers on this subject in Nature, in Nature Methods, in Science, in Trends in Biotechnology, and elsewhere. And recently, there's been a European Commission report with input from a panel of experts on the subject of animal-free antibodies. It's called EU Reference Laboratory for Alternatives to Animal Testing Recommendation on Non-Animal-Derived Antibodies. That report builds on a directive about the need to use methods that avoid the use of animals. Here's Alison Gray. 
the EU directive has been there for a number of years in its present form. Um, and in the EU directive, it's clear. So that is already there. That regulation is always, always there and it states that if an alternative exists, that um, you're obliged to use it. Obviously, it has to be a um, an alternative that is at least as good as, you know, the, the, the method it's looking to replace. The idea behind the new report has been to assess non-animal-derived antibodies and document if they can replace animal-derived ones. Where we are now um, is how we address that question is what do we do? Um, first of all, you know, let's not take your word for it. Let's find out what really is the situation, which is why it's um, why we've had to create all this um, work around it. You know, the, the, work, uh, the working group and everything to look at all the literature you know, you don't just take it from me. We'll bring in a whole panel of experts um, um, that are experts at all, you know, to make it um, unbiased people that cover all aspects of antibody development. Um, and let's really work out what the situation is. And then we know we're in a strong position to address this and, and say confidently there are alternatives and we're ready to use them. Then it's up to the member states to implement um, the recommendation because they're already aware of what the EU directive says. The report is circulating through EU member states, and they will individually decide what they're going to do. Oh, and by the way, Alison Gray will be pursuing the goal of animal-free antibodies irrespective of Brexit. Of course, it's not easy to create change. I think that's the problem with antibodies, is that they're always put aside slightly because they're not the main focus of their um, experiment, they are a tool to make, you know, to to um, prove their hypothesis, and they just want to be able to buy it, use it, forget about it. Other types of antibodies, too, beyond polyclonal, start with immunizing an animal. Traditional monoclonal antibodies for research use, for example. Traditionally, monoclonals are made by injecting an antigen into an animal, which might be a rabbit or a mouse. B cells are gathered from these animals, and those cells are fused to cancer cells, myeloma cells in particular. This creates a so-called hybridoma, which secretes antibodies. The hybridoma grows in the ascites, the fluid that collects in the abdominal cavity. After injection, the mice can, in some cases, start breathing rapidly, hunch over, and not move much. These are all indications the animal is in pain from this ascites method of producing monoclonal antibodies for research use. I mean, in Europe, the ascites method shouldn't be used anymore. That's clear. Um, and yet, we it's only recently, this year, that the new uh, statistics for the European use of animals um, in, in scientific procedures was published. And that's when I became aware um, of the number of animals that are still being used in Europe to produce antibodies via the ascites method. And that's shocking, really shocking. There, there can be no justification for that. And, you know, member states have been spoken to, the competent authorities in each member state have been spoken to. They are aware um, of this. So that, the fact that that's still being authorised is just shocking. Um, I, I, I would expect that to change now that, now that it's been flagged up and exposed like that. I would expect this to change. For now, the ascites method is still used to produce monoclonal antibodies for research use. 
I say research use because there are therapeutic monoclonal antibodies given to people as drugs. Those are not made in mice. But with antibodies for research use, the ascites method is often used. There's no scientific reason to carry on using the ascites method. You can, you can put that down on paper if you want to. It's, it is, I, I, I mean, you could say it's for a lot of methods, not just the ascites method. People become experts in their technology and they want to keep using it. So I, I think inertia is what it's about. Um, you know, we, we now have methods where even if you do continue to immunize animals, yeah, you can use cell culture to produce, to mass produce your antibody. Um, the ascites would offer very little benefit. I, should, I suppose in the beginning you were probably getting higher yields, but that's not the case anymore. Although a number of antibody companies still use the ascites method to produce monoclonal antibodies for research use, some companies are phasing out this method. Here's Alejandra Solage from Abcam. The, that ascites production method really has been um, for us something that we didn't really utilize. We have gone through the tissue culture methodology for our internal development, uh, uh, but we um, we had in the past um, uh, for sourced antibodies from other suppliers and um, and and we had accepted antibodies that had been. Um, have been produced through the ascites methodology, but that's something we have now changed, and um, and we have uh, made significant progress now in terms of eliminating um, ascites-derived antibodies from our catalog. The ascites method is not being abandoned everywhere. Particularly, companies in the U.S., for example, are still quite a lot uh, producing that way. Moving away from the ascites method, some antibody companies have chosen to grow hybridomas in cell culture instead. But hybridomas can be unstable, so a different type of antibody generation and production has emerged. Antibodies made that way are called recombinant antibodies. Here's Katie Crosby, who directs immunohistochemistry at the antibody company Cell Signaling Technology. When one hears recombinant, there's two sort of ways that it's being used. One is in the actual generation of the antibody. And that's what you're talking about with respect to animal free. So there are libraries that are created that include the cDNA or a combination of cDNAs. And then those are expressed in yeast or phage. And then there goes through a whole set of panning experiments and various antibodies are, are identified. And then uh, they are I can't think of the right word, they are uh, produced and then they are made available for use. So that's a true sort of animal-free generation of an antibody. And then that is recombinant both in its uh, generation and in its manufacture. The other approach to recombinant and one that's more maybe more common in the research tool space is the actual production of the antibody. So animals are, are still used in the generation of the antibody, whether it's mice or rabbits, and they're immunized and antibodies are identified, and then they are cloned into expression systems, and then they are produced recombinantly. So there's two different ways to think about recombinant from res with respect to that. CST right now is very heavily involved in recombinant antibody production, and that offers benefits to customers because they are very consistent from lot to lot, and it sort of avoids some of the pitfalls 
of uh, the uh, hybridoma technology where hybridoma cells can be unstable and can lose expression of the antibody or they can express light chain other light chains and antibody preparations can be uh, made more complicated and therefore when one has a recombinant production they're very consistent from lot to lot which offers a benefit to customers they're very scalable so there can be large quantities of antibody produced giving customers basically unlimited access to to antibody and that can be an advantage when they're doing something like a very long-term study where they want to be able to use the same batch of material for a very long period of time abcam2 is revving up recombinant antibody production Internally for our antibody development, um, uh, uh, all, all of our new antibody development is exclusively recombinant now. So we don't develop any antibodies um, uh, utilizing, um, uh, we would not de- develop any ascites derived um, antibodies internally. Recombinant antibodies are not automatically non-animal derived. They can involve immunizing an animal and gathering antibodies and capturing the antibody sequence. Recombinants are renewable and can be engineered. Katie Crosby talks about monoclonals and polyclonals. Monoclonal antibodies are certainly advantageous over polyclonal antibodies with respect to lot-to-lot consistency, but recombinant monoclonal antibodies are, are even better still because they are highly consistent and, and, and scalable, and, and that's an advantage. Typically, hybridomas are uh, put into mice, and ascites is generated, and so to make large batches of material requires a large number of animals, so that's not ideal. Or they are the cells are cultured in, in media, and then the antibody is extracted or purified from that media, and so that can be... Um, costly and take up a lot of space in order to manufacture large quantities. But recombinant production is, can be, uh, is very scalable. Recombinant antibodies are scalable. They can be engineered. They've been derived from a gene. A monoclonal can begin the classic way and then be turned into a recombinant antibody. Fritjof Lund Johansen explains. A regular monoclonal can be made into recombinant antibody. That's that's a matter of that's a matter of cloning the immunoglobulin genes and making it in you know in a recombinant way. That is really the definition of recombinant antibody. So so many antibodies that uh, are sold by major companies today, such as Abcam and 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 Thermo and CST, they are recombinant, meaning that they are. The D, they have the DNA sequence of, of the gene, and they can they can put modifications on it if they like. So it's produced exactly in the same way. As long as you have a, a defined DNA sequence, you have a recombinant antibody. The term recombinant doesn't say anything about whether or not the antibody is non-animal derived, as in not derived from a rabbit or a goat or another animal. What the European Commission report and scientists like Alison Gray would like to see is the use of approaches that avoid animal immunization. So, of course, if you could avoid the whole immunization altogether, it would be wonderful. One way to avoid immunization of animals is to start out with donated B cells from people. 
the idea is that you can make antibodies to anything if you get all the B cells from an individual, and that's not necessarily all, but let's say a large number. And then of what you often do is that you take, so immunoglobulins consist of two chains, the heavy and light chain. What they do is that when you make these libraries, you shuffle those around so that they are randomly paired. So you, let's say that you start with the, let's say that you start with a million B cells and they're all different. They won't be, but let's say you could do that. If you now shuffle the, the, the heavy and light chains, well, then you have a diversity of a million by a million, right? So then suddenly you have 10 to the 12. Of course, you, we don't, you're not going to get a million B cells because that's probably as many B cells as we have in total. But let's say you can start with 100,000. So just by shuffling the, the, the heavy and light chains around, you're going to have you know, the square of that. And then what people do in addition is that they insert mutations into the CDR3. The CDR3s are complementarity-determining region 3s. They're diverse binding loops that one can use when generating recombinant antibodies. For example, recombinant antibodies that do not involve animal immunization at all. Andrew Bradbury was a researcher at Los Alamos National Laboratory when he co-founded a company, Specifica, that develops and sells antibody libraries. He has left Los Alamos and is at Specifica full-time as its chief scientific officer. The libraries the company makes do not involve immunizing animals. The antibodies are semi-synthetic and synthetic CDRs based on information from in-house antibody databases combined with natural CDR3s from donated human B cells. One recent customer is Bayer. That company bought a library from Specifica. Specifica also makes antibodies for customers who approach them with their own targets, which might be proteins involved in a disease. And Bradbury and his team use in-house developed libraries to make antibodies against those targets. Here's Andrew Bradbury. All, all my career, I wanted to make really good antibody libraries. Okay? I felt like this was the future. I was never able to get funding in the academic world to do that. Huh. And there just isn't, uh, there isn't the interest, really. Um, it's because people are interested in funding what you do with libraries, but not the actual making of the libraries. It's completely different in the in the commercial world. People are interested in really good libraries because they, they, they know that they can get really good antibodies from those libraries. These libraries really are a combination of decades of work on my part, and, and it's, it's required, it's taken, it's, it's, it's sort of years of thought of how can we improve this, what can we do, and, and that's resulted in, in, you know, I think these libraries that, are actually performing even better than I expected. I've, I've been surprised, which, which is great, of course. At Specifica, Bradbury has an in-house effort ongoing to develop potential therapeutic antibodies to the virus SARS-CoV-2, which attacks the ACE2 receptor in cells. That is what leads to COVID-19. We have pretty, pretty a small effort on it, but we've now got antibodies that are able to inhibit the binding of um, the spike protein to the ACE2 receptor. And uh, we're moving forward, I would say, more slowly than others, but um, at, at some point it would be nice to get a partner to take on these, these antibodies. 
Bradbury was on the expert panel involved in the European Commission report on non-animal-derived antibodies. So recombinants can be made using antibody genes obtained through animal immunization, but can be entirely synthetic, or they can be derived from human B cells, which is called a naive library. Our libraries are a mixture of um, antibody scaffolds that are already in the clinic, and so therefore they're very well behaved. And then we take um, what you call diversity or binding loops from sequencing that we've done of, of human human genes, antibody genes, and then we put those those binding loops in the antibody scaffolds. And along the way, what we do is we eliminate all the all those binding loops that create potential problems. So whereas most people, what they've done is they've created libraries, they generate lots of antibodies, and after they've done the selection, they then look at all the antibodies that come out and they say, okay, don't use that one, that one, and that one because they've got problems. We eliminate all the, we try and eliminate all the problems up front. So the antibodies that come out of our libraries, uh, the ones we've tested so far, are as good as the clinical candidates that we used as the basis for the, for the scaffolds. To get to these libraries takes a process. Back in the 1990s, when Achim Knappig was at a company called Morphosis in Germany, he developed a fully synthetic antibody library. Morphosis set up a division called Antibodies by Design that used this approach to develop antibodies for researchers. This division was bought by Biorad, and now Knappik directs Biorad's non-animal-derived antibodies division. These antibodies are now in the Biorad catalog alongside antibodies made in ways that do involve immunizing animals. Achim Knappik was also on the expert panel for the European Commission report. I mean, this is all completely fully synthetic. So there's antibody genes, that is the, that is the library, that has been made by gene synthesis. So there is um, not at any point any animal involved in the, in the design and construction process. Um, these antibody genes are then uh, transformed or bacteria are transformed with these any, uh, antibody genes. And this um, collection of bacterial clones, each containing a different antibody gene, is what we call the library. This library is where things start when making new antibodies, in this case, non-animal-derived recombinant antibodies. An important part of making such antibodies is the use of phage display technology. Fritjof Lund Johansen explains. Phage display is a technique to take, to, to display uh, DNA from immunoglobulins, okay? You can, you can so you, you take B cell and make DNA, and you can uh, and isolate the immunoglobulin genes, okay? And then you can display them on the surface of a phage, on the surface of a yeast, or something like that. It's all the same thing. This is display technology. Now, your starting material is what makes the difference. If you start by immunizing a mouse, you can isolate the immunoglobulin genes from that and do phage display or yeast display, Ooh, and that is still display. But it's just a different way of screening than traditional hybridoma. Mm -hmm. uh, now, what people often think of when they hear phage display is to take B cells from somebody who's not immunized. Get, and so if you take my B cells and make antibodies to mouse the IgG, right, that, that is a 
sort of a, a naive library because I have not been immunized against that. Most people who work with naive libraries will pull something out, they will do several rounds of panning, and they will end up with some antibodies, and now they will do affinity maturation of those, where they will do, where they will mutate the CDR3 and then do selections, etc. So they will try to copy the process that goes on during an immune response, where this happens. Somatic hypermutation is called in vivo. That's when the B cells mutate the CDR3 and, and you get high affinity, more high affinity antibodies. So what is done, what often people think of when they talk about recombinant antibodies is the concept of copying the immune response in vitro. You're starting out with a very large number of genes from B cells, which is your naive repertoire, and then you do selections with the antigen, and then you end up, in many cases, doing affinity maturation. So it's sort of a copying the immune response, but it's done in vitro. Phage display is not new, nor is working with naive libraries. Generating antibody libraries without the use of animals and by essentially trying to copy the immune response in vitro is what is needed to generate non-animal-derived antibodies. Katie Crosby from Cell Signaling Technology comments on the prospects of this approach. That requires the generation of a very high-quality library of cDNA um, and, and the adoption of a new technology, basically this, this sort of yeast display or phage display in order to generate antibodies. And that is not something that every company is set up to do. So there would be sort of the cost of implementing that and scaling that. And I, I myself have not worked in that world. I don't know exactly what's entailed and how doable that would be in terms of making an entire manufacturing operation, um, not using animals for immunization at all. I'm, I'm just not sure what that would entail. Other companies, too, are looking at the approaches to make animal-free antibodies. Alejandra Solash at Abcam comments on the prospects for this technology at her company. If you have a great library, and this is something I have been discussing with, uh, so a lot of people that are making uh, recombinant antibodies animal-free, if, if you have a great library, which is going to be hugely expensive, you can actually do it. Um, I mean, we are actually developing phage, uh, antibodies through phage display as well, and we have made several multiple antibodies through through that technology. And, and it's a great technology for when you cannot utilize a, 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 an animal, for example, developing antibodies to toxins, or or um, or when you are not able to to get an antibody through a through an animal, um, yeah, through, for for like if they are very highly conserved. Uh, proteins or or something like that. I think um, it is a great tool. And what we are trying to do at Outcome is to have most of the multiple different tools in, in our arsenal to, to be able to, to generate recombinant antibodies. So for us, it is very important to to get to, to having um, as many report, uh, recombinant antibodies as possible. We have already... 20,000 recombinant antibodies in our catalog. And uh, and that's what we want to be concentrating on, really, throughout any technology. 
um, and, and having excellent libraries is, is an important part of developing the animal-free recombinants. But at the same time, we recognize that the, the technology is not quite there to convert absolutely every every uh, recombinant um, or any every single and new antibody to, to animal-free. Generating polyclonals is easiest for companies and the least expensive for now. Carl Ascoli from Rockland Immunochemicals speculates about how things might develop in the future. Ten years from now, will the technology change in such a way that um, synthetically produced antibodies are more cost-effective and more widely available? It's certainly possible, but let's just see what happens. Right now, I, I don't think that one tool in your toolbox is what you should have. And by that, I mean just recombinant antibodies. I think there are there is a purpose for each of the forms, polyclonal, conventional, hybridoma-based monoclonal, and recombinant monoclonal. I think there's an, there's an appropriate use for all of those. But you shouldn't start taking tools out of the toolbox and say, no, we shouldn't use polyclonal antibodies because they're derived in this way or because they don't have the reproducible, reproducibility that other forms have. I don't think we're there at that point right now where we should be taking tools out of the toolbox. There has been and there remains prejudice against recombinant antibodies. This is apparently a kind of hangover from the early libraries. Achim Knappik from Biorad explains how these prejudices may have gotten their start back in the 1990s. I would imagine that the very first libraries that were developed in the 1990s um, and then also in the early 2000s, those libraries were rather small, small like 10 to the 6, 10 to the 7 uh, members. And of course, uh, in, in this field, uh, size matters. So it's um, if you have a large library, the chance to find an antibody with high specificity definition just increases. And uh, therefore, you need, you need a certain size in order to find decent antibodies. Um, and this is, could, could, be, could have been certainly the case that the antibodies from these original libraries, they were certainly uh, binding and were specific, but probably the affinity was not as high. So, so this, is, this is one reason. Another reason which is often overlooked is that the, the antibodies that are produced from these libraries are monovalent. Um, remember, this is a technology that works in bacteria, and bacteria are not capable of producing uh, full-length IgE antibodies, for instance. So this, this Y-shaped two-arm structure, this cannot be produced functionally in bacteria. And so what um, um, groups like us, what they are using is um, a fragment of the antibody. In our case, it's the FAB fragment. The first outcome of the library is an FAB. So it's a monovalent antibody. It has only one of the, the two arms. And um, in many applications where, uh, for instance, the antigen is, is on a surface like on Western blood or on cells, um, um, avidity is very important in terms of, of binding strength. If you, you can probably easy, easily imagine if you have two arms and both can bind to, to an antigen because there are two antigens closely uh, side by side of each other, um, that this binding will be stronger than if only one arm is able to bind. Um, and this, this effect is called avidity. And um, if an antibody is used in its monovalent form, it doesn't have the 
the apparent binding strength than a bivalent antibody. So what most of in, in most of the cases that we work on antibody development, we convert this antibody into a bivalent version before we send it out to the customer. Depends a little bit on the application. Sometimes the monovalency is also very, very good, um, but often uh, bivalency is better. Recombinant antibodies and non-animal derived antibodies may not be new, but there are holdups related to them. Andrew Bradbury offers his views on some of the factors that influence this holdup. One holdup is that there has been a suspicion um, of these in vitro libraries for the reasons that I mentioned or that were mentioned in the report. Um, it's it's a, it's a it's a problem related to um, overpromising of the technology in the beginning, which I think happens with all technologies. And uh, what's happened since those early early libraries and early promises is people have been beavering away, generating better and better libraries. And I would say that now the libraries are really good and they can replace the use of animals as has been, as was described in that report and in a number of publications. Okay, so that's one problem. The second problem, um, so assuming that people were willing to accept antibodies that came from in vitro libraries, okay? Then the second problem is who's gonna make them and who's gonna test them, who's gonna characterize them. And I think that's the biggest problem at the moment. So, there is not, um, I guess, you, if, if a, a company like Abcam or CST or, or, or Nortenny, they could take on a, um, a library and they could make a library themselves. But it's actually, it's, it's a really specialized art, I would say. And it's not something that if you haven't had any experience in it, you wouldn't want to do that because you'd end up with a library that may be far less functional than... Um, than, than you think it is. And in fact, we the first library I made, which we call Generation One, was made 20 years ago. And we, we thought that had a diversity of about 100 million different antibodies. When um, next-gen sequencing came along, we actually sequenced it. We, it. we turned out that it only had a diversity of 3 million antibodies in the heavy chain. So it, in other words, it was 30 times less diverse than we thought. And mm, because of that, we I took on the use of next-gen sequencing as a quality control in, in the production of our libraries. It was painful to see how bad some of these libraries were, but at the same time, it also provided us with the opportunity of improving the libraries because we, we, could, we, we could find out where the bottlenecks are and we could fix them. Antibody companies, and I have only spoken to a few here, are taking different strategies related to polyclonals and monoclonals, recombinant antibodies, and animal-free recombinant antibodies. Each company has plenty at stake. The path forward will depend on antibody consumers. Those are scientists in labs around the world. Their behavior and the choices they make will shape what happens next. Here's the University of Toronto's Alid Edwards. The consumer actually drives what the businesses do, right? And the recombinant antibody people are, what the heck that? I never used one of those before. And we're professors like us. We are so reluctant to change. Currently, it isn't easy for scientists to assess if a given antibody will work in their experiment, their application, or organism they study. That makes antibody shopping difficult. Fritjof Lund Johansen has an idea. Let's now get all, let's get the antibodies, the best antibodies from both systems from naive libraries 
and made by immunization against some very popular targets, such as P53, EGF receptor, etc. Let's compare antibodies that have been made using naive libraries and that have been made using immunization. And if if the if these antibodies are if the ones that are made by from naive libraries are equally good, then I think it is of course interesting to discuss the possibility of replacing uh, the traditional antibodies. But of course you have to remember that there are there are three million antibodies on the market, right? And and replacing, well, you don't want to replace all of them. Probably you want to replace less than 10% of them because most of them are crap. But if you replace, if you find the best ones and then say, okay, can we make can we make similar reagents without immunization? That would be great. Uh, but I still, I think that the people who make uh, antibodies from naive libraries, they have to show and prove that they can make antibodies that are as good as the best ones that have made, been made by immunization. The proof is hard to deliver. Such comparisons are difficult and expensive. What I want to do is that I want to compare very large numbers of antibodies to the same protein to find the best ones. And we can do that using arrays, you know, our array technology. And we can then test them for, for their ability to capture or immunoprecipitate, if you like, uh, native or denatured proteins. Uh, that has sort of, that's something that I've been working on in the lab for many years. Uh, and I pers and I personally believe that this is this is a very good way of finding the best antibodies. Um, what we what we have to prove is that this capture technique that we are using is also predictive for the performance of antibodies in other applications, such as Western blotting and immunohistochemistry, for example, or immunofluorescence microscopy. We have not done that yet. The reason such assessments matter is that scientists spend too much time chasing down rabbit holes to figure out why an antibody that works in a published paper does not work in their experiment. And they know all too well the frustration of finding a study in the scientific literature and then discovering that the antibody used in that experiment might not quite be showing what is accurate. Peter McPherson is a neuroscientist at McGill University's Montreal Neurological Institute Hospital. Among the areas he studies are the currently incurable neurological diseases, ALS, or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, and FTD, frontotemporal dementia. C9ORF72 is a gene that plays a role in both of these diseases. Here's Peter McPherson. Discovered in 2011, this is the major uh, disease gene in ALS and also in a, in a disease called frontal temporal dementia. And in fact, the fact that this gene, so there's there's families where they have this mutation in this gene C9ORF72, and it's a non-coding mutation, actually. It's not in the coding sense. It might affect the expression levels of the protein. It might affect, it, there might be some toxic gain of functions. And, and, and the details as to how it causes pathology 
while still unknown is debated. McPherson and his team, like other labs, have focused on the C9ORF72 protein. They have been looking at a module this protein has, a so-called DEN domain. The domain offers hints about what this protein does and maybe the role it plays in disease. And so the fact that this ALS disease gene um, had this protein module suggested to us very clearly that the thing was involved in membrane trafficking. So we want to understand, and, but the function of the protein, completely unknown, 100% unknown. So we go and we start looking, okay, to see what we can find out about the function of the protein. Nothing in the literature, but there are some papers where they localize the protein. So we look, and I've got this little slideshow, and it's kind of funny. I make people laugh with it. My postdoc made it. We click on the first thing with a reference above it. And the nucleus lights up in green. And then we click on the next thing and the Golgi lights up in green. And then we click on the next thing and the endosomes light up in green. And then the lysosomes, the actin, the cytosol. By the time you're done, the whole cell is full of green. And those were all published papers reporting the localization of C9R72. And well, it turns it can't out be, in the end. Is it everywhere? No. It, 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 it's possible. It's, it's remotely possible. Uh, but we didn't really think that made much sense to us. It turned out that almost all of those studies were done with a single antibody that simply did not recognize the gene in any of the tests. Those were the 15 papers that had been cited 3,500 times. So it just so what happened was one guy in the very first paper used an antibody from Santa Cruz that didn't work, polyclonal, and then it was published in a neuron paper. So. So the next guy used it, and the next guy used it, and they all got different results, but they all didn't seem to really bother to care to, and none of them validated the antibody. And it turns out that particular antibody simply does not recognize C9R72 in any application period. So we were frustrated. You know, we're, we're, this is human health. This is real serious human health here we're talking about. You know, part of what they use the antibodies for in some of these papers was there's a big debate. Do the levels of C9R72 protein go down in the disease? They use these antibodies to, to make conclusions about that. Antibodies that didn't recognize the protein. In his lab, McPherson continues his research on C9ORF72 and many other aspects relevant to ALS, FTD, and other diseases. But together with Alid Edwards, McPherson is starting a large-scale characterization of antibodies. They want to run a series of characterization experiments with as many antibodies as they can get their hands on. The data will be made publicly available. The project itself is called Icarus. One of the things we want to do is we want to change the culture a little bit. We don't ever plan to rate the antibodies. All we plan to do is do the experiments where we do the characterization of the antibody. We make all of that data openly available and we present the raw data. So we don't we don't make decisions. We don't we don't give it a score. We don't give it a one through ten. We present the data. Any scientist can go look at the data, do the interpretation, say okay. Icarus is a startup that has raised money, for example, from the National Institutes of Health and the Michael J. Fox Foundation. For now, Icarus's home is in the McPherson lab, but over time the hope is to raise enough money to set things up elsewhere and keep the characterization pipeline running. Another large-scale antibody venture is at the nonprofit Institute for Protein Innovation in Boston. 
It was set up by biotech entrepreneur Timothy Springer, and the plan for the organization's antibody initiative is to make synthetic antibodies to all of the human body's proteins and give the antibody sequences to the scientific community for their use. The team has made a large library of synthetic human antigen binding fragments using yeast display, then is using those sequences to make antibodies, expressing them in cells, then selecting and validating the antibodies. Back to Icarus, the venture by Peter McPherson and Alan Edwards. In my day job, right, I want to help invent medicines as a human right and make them affordable for everybody. And so our model for doing that is like Paul Newman's salad dressing. So the Newman's own salad dressing is a for-profit company that pays its taxes, pays its employees, does a good job. But the profits after all of that don't go to the shareholders, don't go to Paul Newman's family's pocket, but get given away. So they've given away $580 million over the course of the to kids' camps, to this, I'll give it away. And so I thought, well, why don't we create a pharmaceutical industry like that? So we created a charity called the Agora Open Science Trust. It's not patenting anything. And we created little companies underneath. The first company we created was M4K Pharma, Meds for Kids Pharma. And we're making a pediatric brain drug. And our mission is to charge a lowest price as possible, as humanly possible. We don't want any money and we've sharing the science as we go we're putting it on youtube every month this is what the chemistry we did that's our ip strategy because you can't patent anything if it's in the public domain so we put everything in the public domain so no one can patent anything and that model we thought why don't we create an antibody validation service under that model so agora created we called it icarus and what it's going to do is going to get knockout cells it's going to get antibodies from everybody create a standard operating procedure, do the experiment, and just put it online. Don't rank them. We just say, we're just going to do the experiment properly and put it out there. And the data will speak for themselves. I think all the players would agree that polyclonals ideally must be eliminated from the face of the planet. Uh, and it'll going to take a while, uh, but we must do it because it's unscientific to have a heterogeneous mix of a thousand different antibodies in there you don't know what it's doing. You're not purified. You don't, you know, it's just unscientific, right? It's what we had at the time. Uh, and there are many different ways to make renewable ones, including the stuff that Andrew does. And I'm agnostic now as to which one, you know, would be the, the one. And we should let the experiments tell us. Many antibody companies do their own in-house characterization and validation experiments. Alejandra Solash comments on that kind of work and on Icarus. We can only do as much as we can do by, our, by ourselves. Having uh, other organizations or other companies doing this is, is um, absolutely uh, the right thing to do. And particularly with the Icarus initiative, which is uh, uh, offering um, a service of validation for academics and other companies that may not have access to these reagents and doing it in a controlled way that is um, uh, they are actually developing the expertise to do it in the right way uh, is, is something that I think will be invaluable. 
Alison Gray, a proponent of non-animal-derived antibodies, wishes the characterization ventures well. I completely support both of what they're doing. There's definitely no but here. I think it's fantastic. That's always, always very important, whether it's animal-derived or um, non-animal-derived. Validation is absolutely key. Traditional antibodies, new types of antibodies, recombinants, animal-derived and non-animal-derived antibodies. Researchers in academia, nonprofits, and at companies have different views on research antibodies, but it looks like research culture and research practices will possibly change a little. We're trying to create a better world, but it's really hard. <laughs> that was Conversations with Scientists. Today's episode was Bye Bye Bunny. It included Dr. Allison Gray from Affability and the University of Nottingham, Dr. Katie Crosby from Cell Signaling Technology, Dr. Alejandra Solash from Abcam, Dr. Carl Ascoli from Rockland Immunochemicals, Dr. Andrew Bradbury from Specifica, Dr. Achim Knappik from Biorad, Dr. Alid Edwards from the University of Toronto, Dr. Fritjof Lund Johansen from Oslo University Hospital, and Dr. Peter McPherson from McGill University. This music is called Coffee Pot by the band Split Phase. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>